Well, good morning. It's good to be back together this morning as we continue on in our series entitled, Let's Break the Rules. We are referring to the six rules of don't talk, don't feel, don't trust, don't think, don't choose, and don't change. Last week, we dove into this first rule of don't talk, and we looked at several passages of scripture about communication. By the conclusion of the message, we noted that God created us to talk with him and others in ways that are authentic and engaging. This underscores the need to be real instead of playing manipulative games and the need to connect with our hearts and use dialogue much, much more than monologue. And since people listen to people who listen, we saw how important it is to listen well, to reflect back, to clarify, to probe, to interact with people. If you were raised with a background of speak only when you're spoken to, we encourage you to break that don't talk rule and initiate conversations with your family, with friends, with others. A man who has friends must show himself friendly, King Solomon wrote in Proverbs. Now today, the second rule we wanna talk about breaking is this don't feel rule. Now, how many times when you grew up did you hear phrases like, stop your crying or I'll give you something to cry about or you can't rely on your feelings. Don't trust your feelings. Don't, you, don't, don't follow your emotions. Feelings are just a caboose on the train. Actually, you know, that, that train metaphor, let's, let's take a look at that train metaphor. Now, some of us uh, looking at this picture will probably say, well, that looks familiar. And the typical explanation has been given as this train will run with or without that caboose. And no one has ever seen the caboose pull that train. You know, when I saw that metaphor when I was younger, that, that picture, I had this clear, distinct feeling that uh, emotions don't matter. And actually, they're kind of like just hanging on the end. They're doing whatever. And if we're talking about just physical emotions, maybe that's true. But if we're talking about emotions like tears of gratitude or a joy being expressed or compassion for someone who's in need or maybe anger at injustice, if we're talking about those feelings don't matter, now we've got another issue. We need to rethink this one through a bit. Trains, uh, you know, we think, you know, don't have cabooses today. In fact, most of the cabooses today are at museums in the backyard. But when it comes to understanding how we as human beings are to be, uh, we need to rethink this train metaphor. So Dan, when you uh, grew up, how did the train metaphor speak to you? Well, whenever I saw this train growing uh, in my growing up years, I, uh, the first couple of decades of my adulthood, my soul heard two words, don't feel. Do not feel or express emotion, just stuff whatever you might be feeling. Now I never thought of that consciously, but that is what my soul heard. The only exception to this was when I was playing piano, as I could put as much expression through my fingers as I wanted to into my playing. So I would go for it, especially with dad sitting in his rocking chair behind me, enjoying the concert, I would play to my heart's delight. But off the piano bench, I was emotionally flat. What a person, when a person is emotionally flat, he doesn't show emotion when you would ordinarily show emotion. And when we stuff our emotions to the backyard of some museum where the caboose goes, uh, given enough time, 
it'll be impossible to hide the resulting damage. May I share a personal story? Last week I shared how I figured, what I figured out from my first two dates in my freshman year of college that I had no idea how to talk, how to have extended conversations. You're not gonna believe what I learned from my third date that freshman year. Okay, I, I wasn't gonna bore you further with such personal stories, but Dr. Dan tells me I really should go for this. It's a good story. <laughs> <laughs> for my third date, I asked this lady out to church. After church, we went to the dating parlor on campus, which looked like a big furniture store, and we sat there and talked. About halfway through our chat, she looked at me very seriously and said, Dan, I have a request for you. You know, there's this all-day Saturday seminar Dr. Cravens is offering in a couple of weeks. It's called Personal Life Seminars. I want to challenge you to set aside whatever else you've got planned for that day and go to this. You will be amazed at what you'll learn. Well, there's no way I was going to go to this because my Saturdays were committed to going on a bus route visitation. I was too busy serving the Lord to go to some seminar, but I could tell she would be disappointed in me if I told her that. So I gave her my gracious Mr. Nice side, thanked her for telling me about this and told her I would do my best. I didn't go, mostly because I was living life at the unconscious incompetence level. That's the word for clueless. I didn't know this, but she knew this. The day after the seminar, she saw me on campus and asked me very directly if I had been there, saying she hadn't seen me there. I said simply, oh, it didn't work out. The look on her face showed her great disappointment. A couple of years later, I had another conversation with her in the dining hall, and I asked her if she would mind telling me why she was so disappointed that day when I hadn't followed through on what she challenged me to do. She very kindly explained that I was a mystery to her, since I always played the piano with great emotion, but off the piano bench, I was emotionally flat. I had never heard that phrase before, but I thanked her for sharing that. In my heart, I shrugged my shoulders. I had no clue what she meant and was too embarrassed to ask. Why? Because I was totally out of touch with the effects of having been raised in an abusive environment with the rules of don't talk and don't feel dictated everything I did. Everything I did was out of duty, not heart. To be candid with you, that was a tough time in my life because I was living in the shadow of having earnestly tried to please dad, having practiced the piano about 10,000 hours the previous eight years, going to the very Bible college 900 miles from home where he told me I should go, only to learn a couple of weeks after leaving home that on the morning after I'd left home, dad had betrayed mom and our family through breaking his 20-year-old family uh, marriage vows emotionally flat i was emotionally tied into a thousand knots trying to survive the damage of dad's affair with the consequential family shame triggering my immense recommitment to the don't talk don't feel rules folks my emotional structure was a train wreck i lived in constant emotional numbness without realizing it I didn't know who I was, and I was the, the least likely one to realize this. And I know today I was very out of touch with who, with who God was too.
Well, that's interesting, Dan, that you recognize now that being out of touch with yourself also meant you were out of touch with God. So actually, there's a good clue here that if we're going to uh, learn about godly emotions, we should look to God and take a close look at him and be aware of how God is, and that gives us a clue. So when we look at the scripture, we find out that there's, there's really about three different ways you can think about God. Typically in our world today, there'll be those who say, well, there is no God. Ultimate reality is just physical. It's just atoms and energy. That's it. And then there's the opposite extreme where there are many gods. In fact, everything has a spirit. Everything is God. And spirituality is everything. It's trees, it's rocks, it's rivers, you know. And that's the, the opposite extreme of that. But the God that, dis, that is described in the Bible is a person. He's separate from creation, but he's actively engaged with creation. Now, the scripture definitely describes God as being a spirit. But he's also a God who is knowable, and he wants to be known. In fact, when we look closely at the scriptures, we find that there is reference to God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now we're, we're getting into mystery here now, because the Bible is very clear there's only one true God. And yet there are three persons, and yet they're one. So let's just, I'll be honest here, this is, this is a bit of a mystery. But it also gives us a revelation. So God is both a mystery and a revelation. So while we can't quite wrap our heads around three but one, when we look at the relationship of the three together, we find that they relate to one another eternally and perfectly. They support each other. They always enjoy one another. There's al they're always in communication with one another. They do act individually and distinctly, but never separately. They each have their roles. They love each other. They serve each other. They submit to one another. They uh, testify of one another. They are co-equal. The Father is supreme, but it's not as uh, an authority of uh, overbearing authority. There's one of leadership. So, man, when you just look at those character qualities, it gives us a, a beginning clue about how we should relate. So, God as a person said on the sixth day of creation, according to Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So just how do we bear God's image? Well, that's really what this entire series is about. God is an emotional being who feels. He's a volitional being who makes choices. He's a rational being who thinks. And he's a personal being who longs. So God made Adam and every person since, since then with his image imprinted on our souls. He created each of us to be emotional beings who feel, volitional beings who choose, rational beings who think, and personal beings who long, who thirst. And God is highly relational, so he talks. He himself is the perfect team with perfect high trust. We'll talk about trust next week. God made each of us to be talking, feeling, trusting, thinking, choosing people. And since we're human and not divine, he also created us to be learning, changing, growing people. He made us with great capacity to relate to one another in community. 
it's when we are in community that we will most likely grow and mature into the kind of people God created us to be. We are all raised with a bias. I would draw the bias of my background like this, heavy on the rational and volitional and light on the emotional and personal. Just believe right and do right, and that's what good Christians do. Emotions, that's what the Pentecostals are into, and we're not them. <laughs> so this, in some ways, reinforced my assumptions that I needed to stuff my emotions and not feel the impact of life or whatever was happening around me. Well, yes, as a real person, God has emotions. In fact, in Genesis 1, at the, at, at the end of day one of creation, he said, that's good. At the end of day six, when he created man, he said, that's very good. And in Genesis 6, it says he was sorry he'd made man because we had fallen and we had become such a, a mess. In Exodus 15, we hear of God's anger about the slavery of the Israelites under Egypt. And in Isaiah 62, we hear God saying that I rejoice over you. Well, 700 years later, um, God comes down to earth in the form of Jesus with a body. And he experiences and he exhibits all the emotions that, that we do. And I'll look at this chart here um, of all the different emotions that you can see. In, uh, in Matthew 9, he t says he looked at the crowds and he saw how harassed and helpless they were. And he had compassion for them. In John 2, it says he felt anger about the money changers. Not because you shouldn't sell things in church, but because the religious leaders were financially oppressing and cheating them, who were trying to honor God by bringing a sacrifice to the temple. In Matthew 17, he says how frustrated he was about this generation that would not believe and still doubted. And then, of course, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was so sorrowful and deeply distressed that it was at the point of what we, what we might call a panic attack, feeling the agony of facing the cross. And then years later, John, one of those disciples who was with him that night, would write in 1 John chapter 4, Herein is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to clear away our sins and all the damage we've done in our relationship with God. Well, without question, God is an emotional being who feels, and he created us to be emotional beings who feel. Just what are we supposed to feel? The impact of life. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis 3. It's amazing how much we can learn about ourselves and our world just by camping out in Genesis 3. Yep. Before Adam sinned, he enjoyed consistently unclouded fellowship with God. There were no walls, no distance, no tension. There was nothing to fear. He was on friendly terms with God. He knew nothing of marital squabbles. The food supply was plentiful in a garden with no weeds, and his job was both secure and meaningful. But when he took of the forbidden fruit and sinned against God, immediately the world became a very difficult place to live. Disorder, uncertainty, emotional stress, broken relationships, and death were introduced. With these consequences came a new emotion never before felt, the emotion of fear. Life's perplexing questions suddenly confronted Adam, as they have his descendants ever since. 
Is there a solution? Will life work? Can I make it on my own? Am I doomed to eternal rejection? Will I fail? Will my life be a waste? Will it ever count? Fear becomes the governing emotional energy in the human personality, and Adam and his wife Eve hide themselves for the very first time. You'll notice in that story, God comes down and he says, Adam, where are you? And Adam doesn't respond by saying, well, I'm over here on the north side of the oak tree picking fresh blueberries. No, Adam was very much aware that there was a new emotion that he was dealing with and he dealt with it. He expressed it right away. He said, I was afraid. And in dealing with this new emotion of, of being afraid and being exposed, he was speaking of something he had never experienced before. He was not expressing a newfound modesty. No. He had to wrestle with this sense of unacceptability. He was convinced if God saw him the way he really was, God wouldn't like him. And so he hid. And Adam handled his fear of rejection by withdrawing. We might say, emotionally, being flat, disconnecting, isolating. And in his effort to try and deal with this new emotion, he just withdrew. And he chose fig leaves and a tree to hide behind to avoid that knowing glance that would indicate rejection. Mm, boy. So how do we handle our fears? The same way Adam and Eve handled theirs. We develop layers. A layer is whatever we do or don't do, which has as its purpose the protection of ourselves from what we fear. Fearful people committed to avoiding the terror of exposure will look for places to hide. We protect ourselves in defensive layers, similarly to how we put on a parka before venturing out into a winter blizzard. People can spend their entire lives behind their layers, selecting which one fits the occasion. People may refuse to talk to their spouses because previous attempts communicate to communicate led to unfulfilled arguments. Not talking then becomes a layer. Some may never offer an opinion because it might be exposed as incorrect. When this layer becomes a way of, a way of life, we call it shyness. Others take every opportunity to voice their ideas. For them, talkativeness is a layer designed to ward off rejection by winning attention. So what happens when layered Christians meet together? Relating from our layers produces surface fellowship, surface community, a set of shallow interchanges that can stir the inmost being no more than a pebble disturbs the ocean. So what does the scripture tell us about how to actually interact? Well, in 1 John 4, verses 18 and 19, to eliminate fear or make it non-controlling so we can drop our layers and have deeper fellowship, there is one thing that will fix this. The Apostle John wrote, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And we love him because he first loved us. Hmm. Well, let's kind of work this scripture here again. Let's, let's recognize that the word love has everything to do with the relationship. Hmm. And perfect has more to do with maturity than it does with performance. So let's just substitute those two words and read those scriptures again. Mm -hmm. 
There is no fear in relationship because a mature relationship casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not matured in relationship. We relate to God because he first related to us. And you know, this acceptance of us, even though we're imperfect, is really one of the basis of, of our fears. In fact, I just heard this past week the story of a friend who said he went, was with some Christians on a mission trip. And they went to this mission field where they would, every year they would go to the top of mountain, a special mountain, and these are prayer mountains, they call them. And people would go up there and they would pray for days and they would fast and, mm-hmm. and they would seek the Lord. And my friend went there thinking, boy, I, I, I'm just not, I'm not that kind of person. I, I, I have never fasted for three days and I don't know how to pray for hours and end. And he went to the top of the mountain with them and he said, Lord, I, I, I just, you know, I have nothing to offer. I, I'm, I'm not like these people. Mm-hmm. And you know what he heard? Yes, I know but you're mine. Hmm. And he was so warmed by that, that has changed his perspective about his imperfection and his acceptability before God anyway. Hmm. And that casts out fear. And today he can approach God with Hmm. confidence because he knows he's welcomed even with imperfections. Hmm. Well, you know, it's no accident that the scripture has the total of 366 references to fear or the phrase fear not that's left for one day, one a day because <laughs> maybe this is because we struggle a lot with this and none of us escapes the heartaches and problems and the difficulties of life because to live in our world to truly live in our world is to hurt and be hurt and we all face the common question well what do we do with all this pain then how do we how do we handle it do we just say get over it or do we just hope it goes away what do we do dan well scripture is loaded with models of how to work through our struggle with emotion the book of psalms show a wide range of emotion god wants to hear from us from the lofty heights of joy to the lowest feelings of destitute hopelessness and everything in between the language is honest true and personal in the psalmist's response to God. The prayers of some psalms sound polished and smooth. In the Hebrew language, most of them sound earthy and rough, not the prayers of nice people. Sometimes the psalmist is grieving. Sometimes he feels livid with the injustice he's seeing around him or experiencing. Obviously, one of the learning points from a study of the book of Psalms is that God is big enough to be able to handle us bringing any emotion to him. Another learning point is that God never calls us to ignore emotion. We don't have to pretend. He doesn't think of emotion as the caboose on the train. He created us with emotion to be like a dashboard so we would know what's going on inside our hearts. A dashboard is wired up as a reliable indicator of what's going on in our vehicle's engine. Likewise, our emotions are a gift from God as a reliable indicator of what's going on in our hearts. When we see lights flashing on the dashboard of a vehicle, we know it would not be a wise thing to take some black tape and cover up the gauge. The proper thing would be to check out the reason why the light's flashing and resolve the issue. 
Likewise, when we're feeling a certain emotion, the wise action to take would be to ask ourselves, what's going on beneath this motion? Why am I feeling this? Where am I? Don't miss this obvious truth that the most natural stimulus for self-examination is being sensitive to and aware of my emotions. Oh, Dan, that, that's a really good metaphor. Uh, the dashboard metaphor as indicating what's going on in my heart. Sometimes we're not aware of what's going on there, but God's given us these indicators. That, that's a, a good metaphor, Dan. In fact, uh, the scripture does talk about dealing with emotions. In fact, in Ecclesiastes 3, talks about there's a time to cry. There's a time to have sorrow. There's a time to speak. There's a time to dance, time to be sorrowful. So it's talking about all these different emotions that a person has, and it's affirming that there are times when it's appropriate to actually feel those things. And so when we go into, into grieving and into loss, it's perfectly right that we would feel those things and just own them. In fact, uh, journaling sometimes is helpful to know, well, you know, why am I feeling this way? And to just pause and think and ask the Holy Spirit to, to reveal to you what is it, it's in your heart, that's giving you this kind of emotional response. And the Bible is just welcoming us to be real and to actually feel these things and to be healed with them. Mm. Well, when we fail to respond appropriately to the wounds that life and relationships inflict on us, our pain will be wasted. It will numb us or destroy us. But from God's perspective, suffering does not have to mangle our hearts and rob us of joy. In, it can instead be the, the pathway directly to life if we're willing to walk the path to healing. In my 34th year of life, I came to realize I had no future in my current state of numbness. It was time to wake up. It was time to come alive. Coming alive didn't happen overnight, and it didn't happen in isolation. My journey of healing and growth happened by walking on a path of breaking each of the rules of my past seeing myself as a talking, feeling, trusting, thinking, choosing, changing person, created in God's image. Various parts of my journey are coming out in each message of the series. Thank the Lord, Jesus gives us great hope. In John 10.10, he says, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly to the full. Amen. He could say this because he heals. He helped blind people see. He helped lame people walk. The next chapter, he brings dead Lazarus back to life. He heals our emotions too, so we can both laugh and cry at the appropriate times. Most amazingly, he forgives our sin. He takes away our shame. It's as if we've been born again. He wipes the slate clean so we can start over. We can relax because we're not living under the don't talk, don't feel rules. He gives all who come to him a new future of freedom and grace. Amen. Let me pray with you. Father, thank you for giving us the gift of emotions. Thank you that you have provided forgiveness and redemption and healing and freedom and liberty and thank you that you've you've given us hope and i pray for those who need hope this morning 
that you would give them hope and give them encouragement. And may they want to know more, Lord, about how to find this kind of life that is abundant so they can live it to the full. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen.